When I was a kid, never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now, what's the plan now? Gotta move on, those days are gone now. Take me back. I'm gonna tell a story right now that's a little heavy. I'm gonna tell a heavy story, you know, because people are always asking me, you know, what got you into comedy and how you got out here to LA and where you're from and what's your background, Mike? And they're always like, yo, you sound like you're from the East Coast and you got like this little bit of like kind of the way you talk is kind of hood and blah, 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 but it's not. It's not. Everything I am, everything I got, I have, it comes from my parents, you know, it comes from just a, a real cool, cool dad and a cool mom and I'm gonna tell you a story about my dad right now and then I'll let you figure out where I'm from and and why I am the way I am my dad used to run an all-men's health club in Detroit in the 70s and in this health club were the head of the mob the head of the you know the head of the Detroit syndicate belonged there with his crew Emmanuel Stewart, who was Kronk boxing trainer to 14 world champions over a 10-year, 13-year span, including Tommy Hitman Hearns, Tony Tucker, Jimmy Paul, Milt McCrory. Obviously, Emmanuel was a legend. He ended up training, you know, Lennox Lewis, the Klitschko's, Mike Tyson, Holyfield, everybody. Emmanuel was the man. Emmanuel was a good friend of my father. So now you see what kind of stock I come from. And I don't come from an entertainment background, but I come from just a cool-ass dad who was in the scrap metal business and just made friends with everybody. And in Detroit, in the 70s, when I was a kid growing up, my dad would take us to the club, me and my brother, and we knew something special was kind of going on at this place. We knew this club had something more than just members. The mayor worked out there, the politicians, the gangsters, the guys that ran the underworld. And it turned out the day Jimmy Hoffa disappeared that everybody who had an alibi, every suspect, every gangster question, they all had the same alibi. We were at the Southfield Athletic Club working out. So that's the environment that I'm from. I didn't grow up rough. I didn't grow up in the hood. I grew up sort of a hood, but I was not in the hood. We had a great family. 25 first cousins. We grew up like brothers and sisters. I could not have had a better childhood. It was incredible. And the unfortunate part of my life was my dad died young. He died when he was 47 years old. I was 19 or 20 at the time. And it was the bullet. You know, it was the it was the game changer for me. And I'm just going to put it out there and I'm going to let it bleed on this one because I get I just get the question all the time. Like, what did your dad do? Was it did you come from a family that was in entertainment? How did you even become a comedian? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and let's just put it this way. My dad was one of the funniest dudes in the world. The reason that the gangsters and the athletes and the politicians and the rich and the poor people and the reason that there was 1,500 people with a police escort at my dad's funeral was simply because he was just that cool. He was just the dude that listened. He was just the dude that made you feel like you were all right. He didn't judge. He knew I had shady friends. He was cool with them. He knew I had legit friends. He was cool with them. My dad was just a great character man. And I wanted to tell this story because it's just heavy and it just shows what kind of stock I come from. And I'm proud. And I, I know that I am Sam's son. And my brother Robert is Sam's son. And I'm going to just tell the story about how even at the end of my dad's life, he was just making sure the family was okay. 
So my dad was in the scrap metal business. It was a business that he went into after his father kind of left the business for dead, basically. He had a dump truck, and my grandfather really kind of just retired after not having ever done that well. And my dad saw this as an opportunity, and he knew that the people that he knew in Detroit were had some probably some powerful connections, and they could connect him to some accounts in the scrap world, and my dad could go make a living. So after he was done working out, at the, you know, at working at the Southwood Athletic Club, which is where you know everybody, the who's who of Detroit, were members. He took on the scrap metal business, and he had a dump truck, and he was basically just a scrap peddler, a funny scrap peddler, but he was making money, but he was not bragging. He was humble. He never told you he was making money, but when I finally had a chance to go to work with my dad and sit in that passenger seat as a young kid and a teen, and an early teenager and sit back and watch what was happening, I was watching money being made. We would go on a truck. We would shovel brass, we would put it in the back of the truck, we would pull up, we would go get paid, and it was mostly cash at the time, and it was the 80s, and I was watching my dad get 15, 20,000 at a pop in a day. We'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning, we'd head to the yard, we'd pick up the truck, we'd go to the brass spot, we'd put the brass in the back of the truck, and boom, we'd take it, weigh it, get paid, and redo it again. And it was an amazing business. It was very cool. It did not last long enough because my dad did not live long enough. But I'm going to tell you about the week my dad was dying. My dad had pancreatic cancer. It was the heaviest shit ever. We were in Vegas for a weekend, and my dad just didn't look right. He just looked a little off. He looked a little peakish. He looked a little weak, and he wasn't feeling good. So he was like, I said, yo, you, you look a little weak. What's going on? He's like, I don't know. I don't feel good. And it turned out that it was bad. So we're in Vegas and he's still keeping his spirits up and he doesn't know what's wrong with him yet. And after the Vegas trip and we had been gambling and having fun and my dad was the type of guy who was at the table. If he won, he'd make comments like, oh, kids getting new shoes. He just had, he just, he ran the show. He ran the room. So he goes, flies back from Vegas and he throws up on the airplane, and my mom takes him to the hospital the next day, and I'm back in college. I'm at University of Arizona. The next day, I get a phone call from my mom. Are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. Dad's got cancer, but he's going to beat it. That's what she says. She doesn't know. She's fighting, you know, she's fighting it back. I call my dad's best friend, Eduardo, one of his good friends who's a doctor, a high-end doctor, ran, the, ran one of the hospitals in Detroit. I said, how bad is it? He said, you need to come home. And this was how quick it went down. So I get home, and within I had just seen my dad five, six days earlier. When I get home, he's yellow, he's jaundiced, it's terrible. And I'm just going to fast forward so that I can get through this story. But my dad's sitting in bed, and at this point he's got an oxygen tank, and he'd been to the doctors, and they told him there was basically no hope, and there's nothing they could do, and... You know, they tried to give him take-home chemo, and it was bullshit. You fucking click a button, and it gives you chemo, and it makes you sick. And there was no getting past it. The, the, the cancer had advanced so much. But what, what drove me, what, what inspired me about my dad was even the last week of his life, he was making sure that we were okay. So I remember the morning. My mom, my dad's not eating. He can't eat. My mom's yelling at him because she wants him to eat. And she, you know, she's doing everything she can to keep him alive. And she's in denial that this is the end. And my dad brings me in the room and he says, Michael, do me a favor. Go in the closet and get the shoebox. 
So I go in the closet, and I know there's a shoebox in there that's got some cash in it. And I go get this shoebox, and there's probably 50, 60, 75,000 in cash in there. And he tells me, put 15,000 in an envelope and get your brother in here. And my brother comes in the room, and I got 15,000 counted out in an envelope. And he's, my brother's in the room, and it's just the three young boys, and we're sitting there on the bed. And my dad's hooked on oxygen, and it's fucking heavy, man. It's heavy, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is, it's surreal. It's just not real. I got 15,000. My dad tells my brother, go start the car. Robert goes out. He starts the car. Then he goes around. He gets in the passenger seat. I'm going to drive. My dad says, we're going to the yard. We're going to go to the yard, and we're going to see Vern. Vern is a guy that my dad had done business with for years. I knew Vern ever since I was a kid. Vern is the guy that ran the yard. He's the guy that would call my dad and say, Sam, there's a pickup. We need you in here at 4.30 in the morning. Get in here. Get this shit out of here before anybody even shows up. He made sure that my dad got the gig. So my dad says, get in the car. We all get in the car. and We get in the car. My dad's in the back seat of the fucking Buick of a white Buick, and he's in the back seat, and he's got an oxygen tank, a little oxygen tank that's helping him breathe because he can't breathe. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm fucking driving my dad to the yard on 8 Mile. He's got an oxygen tank hooked on. He's in the back seat, and I got my brother in the passenger seat, and shit is heavy. I got 15000 in cash on me. My dad says, drive to the yard, and don't tell anybody I'm here, but you're going to go inside. You're going to see Vern. We drive down to the yard, and we talk, you know, and it's just... Every night I've just basically been, just been crying because I'm listening to my dad cough and I know that this is the end. And there's just, there's no, you know, for people out there that have been through death. And, you know, I was talking to my buddy the other day and I don't mean to, main, to name drop, but fuck it. I live in Hollywood, so I'm going to name drop. But, you know, me and, you know, Bob Saget, who I open for a lot, my good friend Kevin Connolly, who's on Entourage, you know, we all have lost parents, and we lost them at young ages, at younger ages. And we always talk about, like, if you're somebody who's dealt with death at a young age, you have a hard time relating to people that complain about shit. And unfortunately for me, man, before it was even my dad, I had been to 12, 13 funerals. I got hit hard as a young kid. We had a lot of relatives and a lot of tragedy, and we had fucking three suicides on my mom's side, and we had cancer everywhere, and it was just a fucking rough go. So even though I had the greatest, most fun childhood with the coolest cousins and the greatest child upbringing and the best way you could hope to grow up, we went to funerals often. So I knew about death at a young age. So when people are like, Mike, why are you single and just acting like you're having fun? Because, motherfucker, I am having fun. I know this shit ain't forever. So I do what I want, and that's just the way it goes. And it's hard to explain to people that haven't been through shit, but that's just real. That was my sidebar. Um, because, you know, when I've been in relationships and I hear my girl, you know, talk about complaining about this little shit, and I, you know, you, you want to say, yo, relax, you're fucking alive. People don't get it until they've been through shit. So cut to, we're driving down eight mile. I pull in the yard. I pull up to where Vern's office is. I, actually, I pull up to the, to the trucking dock, right in, into the truck space. I'm in the car. My dad says, yo, don't tell anybody I'm in here. I don't want to see anybody. I want you to go inside. I want you to give Vern 15000 So I got 15000 I'm going to make, this is my first payoff that I've ever had to do. And this was kind of like, I felt like my dad was just like passing the baton to me. 
And so I got, I got the money. It's in my pocket. My brother's in the passenger seat. I head into the office. I see Vern right away. He says, yo, how's your dad? I said, it's not good. He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. I love your father. He said, take this hat. He gives me a, hard, a yellow hard hat, construction hat. He puts one on. I put one on. He gives me safety goggles. He says, follow me. We go out to the yard outside, the outdoor yard. Mounds of brass, mounds of copper, mounds of new steel, mounds of copper coiling, mounds of old steel, cranes moving, shits popping, cars getting crushed in one corner, crane lifting fucking uh, compact car, dropping it in another pile. It's just a dangerous area, but it's fucking dope. I love, I tell people this to this day, I feel more comfortable around a scrapyard or a railroad tracker just in that, that fucking metallic, rough, blue-collar environment, industrial environment than I do basically anywhere. It's really strange. It's the only way I could explain it. But I spent a lot of time in that world, and it was fucking cool. And there were some beautiful characters there, man. I remember my, my dad's friend, Willie, who worked at the yard for 40 years. You know, old Willie, African-American dude, probably 75 years old and stronger than any eight people you knew. This dude will fucking lift a 600-pound barrel of scrap over his head and dump it into the back of the truck. I remember my dad had some outlaw motorcycle club guys that used to work there, and they kind of had my dad's back because every year my dad would take him to the strip club on New Year's just kind of as a thank you for watching out for us and kind of thank you for, you know, helping out on the truck and thank you for helping shovel scrap and driving the high-low when I needed you and just, just thank you. And it was always funny because my mom, you know, she was cool with it. And she didn't even think twice about it. But, yeah, my dad would take these guys to the strip club and just treat them right. Uh, and he would also take the guys that were that ran the yard, Scotty and, uh, and uh, um, shit, man. How did I forget the other guy's name? God damn. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Uh, he's the one I see more than Scotty. Um, so the two, he would take everybody to the, uh, he would treat them all once a year. So Vern and I, we walk out to the yard, and we're just talking, and we're, it's loud out there, you know, and he's looking, and we're kind of having small talk, and I realize small talk sort of drifting off into nonsense, and then just in a moment, in just one moment, Vern just looks at me, and he just goes, okay, now, and I hand him, I hand him an envelope, and the envelope's got 15000 and he stuffs it down his pants as if it didn't happen, and he pulls his shirt over his little fat belly. And I remember thinking, like, man, that was smooth. He stuck it right down the front of his pants, pulled his shirt as if nobody saw shit, and he said, let's go back in. And just like that, business was done. Just like that, my dad handed me the baton and said, here you go, son. If you ever decide to, to go into this business, this is how business gets done. And you will have to take care of people along the way in this particular business. And listen. As far as I'm concerned, that's the way business gets done all over the planet Earth. You know, call it what you want. But that account put me through college. That account put money in the bank. That account bought two houses. That account fed us for years. And that's the way it was. So I pay off Vern. We go back in. We have a little small talk. He says, send your love to your father and your mother. And... Give him back the hat and glasses, and I head back out. I get in the car. My dad asked me if everything went smooth. I tell him it did. We head back to the house, and just like that, we're back to the house, you know. And you know, the rest of the the rest of the story is a rough one, 
just because my dad went downhill fast. And I may as well tell you this as the tag to it all because my dad's been gone now for 25 years. And it's the one thing that fucks with my head so goddamn bad. And it gives me guilt to this day. But I was sitting with my dad in his bed. And I remember sitting there laying with my dad and having the thought of, give me this fucking cancer. Like, give it to me. Like, if my hero, if my dad's gone, if he's going, I'm out too. Like, that's how close I was to my dad. And that's what me and my brother felt about my dad. He was just, I can't even tell you, he was the coolest man I knew. And everything I do now, I just try to make him... You know, like in this fucked up bitch made business of Hollywood that can sometimes be great, but sometimes be just a bunch of little bitches. I I hold my dad close to my heart. And it's like, I think a lot of times, like, what would my dad do? And believe me when I tell you, he wouldn't take a lot of the shit that I take. And he would step up and say shit that he needed to be said, especially when it came to business. And it's probably why I've been fired multiple times uh, I've been fired off a couple movies. I've been thrown out of a couple editing rooms. But you know what? I'm, I'm, I made the decision early on. I'm always going to say what the fuck I feel, you know, especially when it comes to my art, my craft, you know. So that's the way it goes. I, I'm great at working with people. I love people. But if I feel strongly about something, I'm going to say it. I'm going to put it on the table. We're going to go from there. But I'm never going to go through... I'm never going to go through any of this process without saying my piece. That's just the way I'm a fucking man. I'm going to say my piece. Uh, So we're back at the house. And the one thing that riddles me to this day with guilt, and it fucks with me, man, is I'm laying there and I tell my dad, I'm not going back to college. I'm not going. I'm quitting school. I tell him I'm quitting school. I don't need this shit. I'm staying home. And my dad was adamant. He's like, you're going back to school. You're going to finish this shit. You got one year left. You're going back to fucking school. And he was serious. So in my mind, I thought that if I could go back to school for a couple weeks, I would just take a couple tests, get a little shit together, pack a bag, and come back home for a month or whatever it was going to be till my dad passed away. Well, one morning, I got my ticket ready to go back to school, and I figure I'll be back in two weeks. And I say goodbye and I go to the airport, and I'm packed, and I fucking get on the airplane, and I got a motherfucking layover in Chicago, and I lay over in Chicago, and as I'm in Chicago's airport, at uh, Midway Airport, I hear over the loudspeaker, Michael Young, please pick up a red phone. I'm like, this can't be me. And yep, it's me, Michael Young, pick up a red phone. And I pick up a red phone, and it's my mom. And my mom just says, get on the next plane back to Detroit. I said, what? What? What's going on? Just get on a plane back to Detroit. And I know this isn't good. I know this isn't good. And I get back on a, I fucking take my credit card and I buy a ticket right back to Detroit. And it's only a 40-minute flight back to Detroit. And I'm heading back and I land And I go outside, and there's my Uncle Skip, God rest his soul, my Uncle Skip. And I always, you know, certain things, certain moments in life will bond you together with somebody. You will go through something with somebody, and it'll be a traumatic moment. And my Uncle Skip was the one that had to tell me that my dad passed away. And I saw my Uncle Skip, and I gave him a hug, and I said, what's going on? He just held me, and he was a big man. He was a big man. He was 400 pounds, and it wasn't muscle. And he held me there, and I remember the feeling of that. And he just said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
your dad was passed away. And needless to say, I cried heavily the entire ride back to my house. And by the time I got back to my house, my street was lined with probably 40 cars. And the house was packed. And this was the heaviest shit I've ever had to deal with because it fucking killed me that I wasn't there. I wasn't there. My brother was there. My brother had to deal with this shit. My brother, Robert, who had to fucking... My dad died in his arms. And to this day, I've never been able... Rob and I have never had that full-weighted conversation of... I just want to say to him, you're a hero to me, bro. You've been through something that I could don't know if I could survive. Like, you are a fucking man. I am a fucking bitch. I'm a bitch-made motherfucker who was on an airplane leaving, who wanted to go be, you know, back to college, who became a comedian and a writer, and you fucking stayed there, and you had to deal with that, you know, and you took the scrap metal business over, and you decided to stay back in Detroit. And I just, I always felt, you know, I felt really guilty from that. It fucked with me, man. To the point where my mom had seen a psychic one day and the psychic had said something like, tell Michael it's okay, I know he feels bad, but it's like she was a medium talking to my dad. You know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't buy that shit. But I thought I would just share that story because a lot of people were like, where are you from? Where do you, who do you come from? Where you know, well, what made you a comedian? Nothing in that story tells you why I'm a comedian or a writer or a director. Nothing really tells you that other than the greatest fucking joy I ever had in my whole life to this day was the laughter that I experienced at the table, at the kitchen table with my mom, dad, and my brother. Or the same situation sitting around a TV set watching old Abbott and Costello Three Stooges, Mel Brooks movies, Woody Allen movies, any of that shit. That was what me, my dad, my brother, we love to laugh. And to this day, I can't tell you if I like to make people laugh more than I like laughing. I, I really can't tell you. To me, they feed each other and it's fucking beautiful. And when I write comedy, it's kind of just to make me laugh. And I just, in the hopes that everybody else will laugh. So... I don't know if this motherfucking piece is going to make it to my podcast, but it was just something that I just had to kind of, it was a story that I had to tell because I feel like the more, I feel like the human condition and the human is geared towards telling story. And when you tell a story, whether you talk it out or write it out, whatever it is, it just fucking, it peels a layer off. It just fucking peels that onion. It just gets something off your chest. It's therapeutic. It's just fucking good for you. If it's a story that you need to tell. And that is a story that I needed to tell. And it, I tell it to people that have, yo, if you've never been through tragedy, God bless you. I fucking, I don't judge you. I fucking love you. I love that you haven't had to deal with this type of shit. You know what I mean? I've met people in their 30s who've never been to a funeral yet who still have all grandparents. You know what I mean? I was I got hit fucking 11, 12 years in a row every year with a funeral. You know what I mean? I'll carry a fucking casket with a pinky. I, I got the whole funeral game down. So that was the story of, of my dad passing the baton. And, you know, hey... Life, life isn't that short. You know, we always, life is short, but it can be. 
It can be. So, yo, be around people that you love, you know, and let it be known. Because as corny as that might sound, love's the fucking drug. You know what I mean? That's the real shit. And, you know, look, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. You know, get around, get around your friends you love if it, if it ain't your family. You know, I always feel bad for people that didn't grow up loving their family. I got lucky. I'm a lucky dude in that way. So think of that irony. Funeral, 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 funeral. Yet a lucky motherfucker to have the coolest family. I got 15, 16, 17 first cousins, eight, probably more. We're all brothers and sisters. We fucking grew up loving each other. You know what I mean? You want to talk about a gang, a crew, a mob? Fuck with our clan. You know what I mean? It always makes me think of that Mario Joyner. He, had, he used to have a joke I used to love. He's like, come on, don't act like I'm the only one with a shooter in his family. We got motherfuckers in our family that, let's just say, they're not afraid. Um, that's it. Story that needed to be told. I'll talk to you soon.